Fiction. Radio Play, an oft-ridiculed frontier. It all started when a remote programming experiment some community radio station on the central coast of California was conducting went a little caca. Their names are Gall, Moses, and Ted. They're lost, aren't we all? One of them owns an astronaut costume, shot through a wormhole for the sake of narrative explanation. Anyway, here they are, bouncing around speculative fiction thematic time and space, rather timidly going where many a man has gone before. These are the voyages of the Incompanats. Interior Contentment Dome Terraformed Mars Gaul, Moses, and Ted awaken to find themselves floating in a bath of warm, viscous liquid. A slightly bewildered yet nonetheless tranquil Moses eases himself out of the slime. Oh, feel great! It's like I've been reborn. New year, new me. But where are we? A small, unobtrusive beacon of light darts forward into the room, emanating from the light a deep, soothing voice. Welcome, Incompanauts. My name is E.B., your personalized contentment dome officer. And to answer your question, Ted, you are in the future. The milky glass dome surrounding the trio quickly clears to reveal a lush, purposeful city. Holy macaroni! Is the future fully automated luxury space communism? Correct, Gaul. Would you like a cookie? Yes! A post-scarcity society of widespread prosperity fueled by advanced technologies? Correct, Moses. Would you like a cookie? Yes, absolutely. A perfect utopia, all thanks to our visionary leader, Elon Musk. Glory upon his name. I'm sorry, did you say Elon Musk? Praise be he who is most generous. No, that that can't be right. Uh, guys, does E.B.'s voice sound familiar at all to you? Yeah. Gall, would you like another cookie? Yes? Now, Gall, I think this is just Brian pulling a trick on us again. No, because Brian's evil. This isn't evil Brian, this is E.B. He's got cookies and an unhealthy admiration for Elon Musk. Oh my god, think about it, Gull. E.B., evil Brian, connect the dots. Oh, fudge. Ooh, fudge? We've got fudge. No, no, do not distract me. So, okay, is this future socialist utopia thing just some sort of Matrix ripoff when we're all just plugged into squalid machines right now, drool dribbling down our chins? Well, not exactly. We're on future Mars, and this is all thanks to Elon Musk. May his name echo in the land. It's just that this place is really for billionaires. And the other 99% of the population? Oh, they're mostly burning up on Earth's remains. It's a real Mad Max situation down there. Damn it, Brian! We've had enough. Let's just grab some cookies and get out of here. Maybe there's some salvageable humanity left down on Earth. Gall, Moses, and Ted exit the dome, a trail of crumbs the only thing they leave behind. Please, don't go. There's so much I wanted to show you. Have you ever had young blood transfusion? The distant sound of the incompetent shuttle echoes through the dome. I'm so lonely.
to the one of all things. comrades and welcome to <laughs> less refuge of the incompetent i am gall i am moses i am neighbor ted i'm nick yeah. it's our <laughs> special guest <laughs> it's our special <laughs> guest so this is a science fiction speculative fiction radio show every week we have a different theme and we curate books and movies and music all around that theme and this week our theme is how sci-fi shapes socialism the reason <laughs> the reason we are doing that not just because if you listen to the show regularly you've might have noticed that we're a bunch of lefty scum, but also because I read an article by our special guest, Nick Hubble, and Nick is a professor of modern and contemporary English at Brunel University, London. Hubble reviews science fiction books for various outlets, including Strange Horizons, and they are one of the judges for this year's Arthur C. Clarke Award. So welcome and thank you for being on our show. Well, thanks very much for having me. First paragraph from that article gives you a sense of why we're doing this week's show. From William Morris to Ursula K. Kayla Gwynn and Ian M. Bank, science fiction has provided an outlet for socialist thinkers, offering readers a break from capitalist realism and allowing us to imagine a vastly different world. There's a lot of, obviously a lot of music that kind of could be related to, tangentially to to this theme. Uh, I was thinking because we, one of the books we focused on was a socialist utopia from the 1890s, that there might be some songs about utopias in general. One by Donald Fagan called IGY. Ted, you're nodding your head. Are there any that you can think of? <laughs> uh, well, there's, so Chumbawamba has an album, English Rebel Songs, 1381 to 1914, and they sing uh, World Turned Upside Down, which is very reminiscent of um, the William Morris book we read. I found a website... I don't, maybe you know about this, Ted. It's called Unearthing the Music. It's it's like a coalition of five EU nations that are chronicling music that came out during Soviet regimes. So a lot of like rock music. And there was this one article called Socialism, National Utopia, and Rock Music Inside the Albanian Rock Scene of Yugoslavia from oh, cool. 1970 to 1989. There might be something cool in there. Yeah, if I can okay. find any uh, some Albanian stuff, then good Hoshaist <laughs> rock music I will definitely include it other stuff the Ethiopians have a song called Socialism Train that, that's pretty clear that it's about socialism yeah, that one's uh, going in it's a classic maybe some gang of four Griff Rus from the Super Furry Animals did this concept album about the Italian communist publisher who published like Dr. Zhivago in the West disappeared mysteriously probably blew himself up accidentally doing sabotage there's a song on that called Hoops with Hoops with Fidel. It's a great <laughs> song about world communism. Deepest pool of deepest blue shall swim to you. Morning never waits for you, shall wait for you. You're listening the to the podcast edit of Last Refuge of the Incompetent. What does that mean? Well, that means that all that lovely music that we curate for the radio that fits the theme perfectly and is eclectic and interesting and wonderful to listen to has to be edited out. And if you don't care, then keep listening. But if you do care, check us out on Mixcloud. The full unedited show can be found there. Don't know how to find that? Just go to lastrefugepod.com, lastrefugepod.com, all the information you need, 
can be found, accessed, okay. Before we dig in, what, what what inspired you to write that article? Well, there was uh, it kind of just came out uh, in some ways because of the kind of historical juncture we're in at the moment. I think the um, I mean it's a bit the, that that phrase, which I think is originally Frederick Jameson. It's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Seems to come literally true, you know, during the <laughs> the, the pandemic in some ways and. and well, I suppose also at the same time, the kind of threat of climate change, which is kind of uh, intensified. It suddenly seemed that everything's happening at once. We're at this point of um, of crisis. And yet also, there's an incredibly, you know, apart from people who are directly affected by fatalities, there seems to be an incredibly blasé attitude as well. You know, it's like everything's kind of going on. And the, the, the main official concern is more like, you know, how is business going to keep going? You know, how, uh, you know, how, how, how um, are we going to keep the economy going? So kind of literalness of that situation made me think right you know that there are things that i read that speak exactly to this kind of context and have a kind of future that's different and it's it's kind of getting to the point where it's now or never so <laughs> i thought right i'm going to write this there's ways we can think about the present we don't have to be stuck in 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 in, in depression that there are possibilities we can imagine the end of capitalism i mean partly i just read kim stanley robinson's the ministry for the future which obviously very literally works out how capitalism might end within those contexts particularly the context of climate change that, that these writing about so that was that was another inspiration and then I just thought about the other texts I could think of and the kind of ways of thinking about the future that are useful for making us realize that you know there's other alternatives open in front of us what, what would you say to someone who says that reading fiction is frivolous oh <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, <laughs> that would be a you know that's I just can't countenance that 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 possibility because I spent my entire life reading fiction and that's such a, a fundamental uh, aspect of what I am during the pandemic. That's been my kind of lifeline. You know, I have been uh, able to keep reading, and uh, you know, in some cases, some periods of time, that's been the only thing one can really do. Uh, so for that level, but also it's the imagination. I think without imagination, the future won't be different. Without imagination, we can't uh, also imagine what socialism would be like when that's kind of the problem with socialism is not explaining it as an idea it's getting people to imagine what it would actually be like so they actually invest in it and countering this kind of negative ideological images of it from various kind of i suppose you know failed attempts at socialism or kind of uh historical dead ends and mistakes that have kind of occurred over the last hundred you know or, or so years and trying to give people a different sense of possibility so i i don't think we're going to do that without reading fiction and you know watching fiction and i feel like we get this big overlap with science fiction speculative fiction in particular and uh, i imagine social socialist possible futures not just because of kind of the futurological component of a lot of sci-fi but it seems like these utopian novels they all get dumped into the sci-fi genre just because that transition is uh yeah so far-fetched for most people that it get it's as feasible as you know wormholes and uh, time travel. <laughs> yeah, I think that's depressing. <laughs> yes, 
<laughs> I think that's true. There is there is a problem. I mean, I mean, I've seen responses to to the article on social media saying, "Oh, it's a bad idea to link socialism and science fiction because there's that sense of science fiction which it is just fantasy, make believe, something that won't actually happen." But I think that's one we just have to sort of take on the on 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 the chin and go through yeah. to the other side of because yeah, exactly. you know everything depends on 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 the imagination and you know otherwise we you know we I don't know I don't think even the people who can't imagine what it would be like they, they their failure of imagination in some ways is an act of the imagination it's just not a particularly developed one you know in in some ways if nobody actually uh, had a, had an imagination we it'd probably be easier in some ways to change the paradox to change the the political system because there wouldn't be that kind of concern about it so it's just something we have to work with and get through to the other the other side so you know therefore the more the more imagination the more that we discuss it the more likely it is to you know to happen and for people to be able to think those things i think in some ways people have to think it through for themselves so and if fiction is frivolous then i mean what is it like we understand yeah. things through <laughs> yeah. narrative structures <laughs> right Nonfiction is just fiction with an adequate amount of citations <laughs> well if you if you are curious about what more than just the books that we end up talking about i'm going to link on our website china mieville as has a list of 50 sci-fi and fantasy books every socialist should read which is a really exhausting list this tradition of left-leaning sci-fi writers goes back to the start of what people start to call sci-fi or speculative fiction you know from the progenitors of radical sci-fi in the 19th century people like hg wells and william morris you know jack london and isaac asimov and all the way through Stanislaw Lem, Ursula K. Le Guin is famous for talking about how, you know, it's really important to use your ability as a creative, as a creative person to imagine new worlds and create a better vision for our future. Um, Marge Piercy to Ian M. Banks. And I know you mentioned that you wanted to talk a little bit about Ian M. Banks. It's very big. Well, I think it's big for, for a whole generation of, of, of British science fiction writers. And for me personally, he's the writer that all, all of his fiction, actually, not just his science fiction, he's the writer who kind of appeared at the moment when I was a, a young adult and that I read every single book he wrote throughout his life until he's, you know, he, 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 he unfortunately passed away a few years ago at a, a, a young age, a relatively young age. But uh, I know that I never been in a position where I've, uh, that's the only writer I suppose I've actually read every single work as they've written it throughout the period so in that sense it's kind of part of my my own personal uh, development but I think it also applies to a whole generation of science fiction writers in the UK and I think that the culture in particular those novels because they do imagine a kind of post-scarcity utopia and they do write about it consistently over nine volumes or nine I think there's no, there's nine novels and there's one kind of no, novella and a couple of short stories but I suppose the one that in some ways I like is the uh, the state of the art which is the novella where the culture come to earth circa 1977 and you probably decide it's such a hopeless case that they actually leave without <laughs> intervening at all but that actually provides there's a kind of conversation in that that novel exactly about the po- kind of politics of intervention which in some ways the entire series is about the politics of when it's when it's appropriate to intervene to try and help you know societies evolve uh, but the, the discussion there is and the culture, the culture mind, you know, the AI of the, of, of, of the ship says something like, well, you know, I estimate it would take 10,000 years for the Earth to get 
to the, to that state where people are actually ready to 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 live in a utopia and although in some ways this is a depressing <laughs> realization perhaps if you're looking for instant um salvation i rather like that idea in some ways that it would happen in, you know that's also that's also a kind of science fictional idea that we you, we just have to think in terms of the right scale and you know the positive change will happen eventually. It's taken you know hundreds of thousands of years to 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 evolve from you know the savanna or whatever to the state we're in we're in now. Obviously, it's not relatively speaking another ten thousand years wouldn't be that <laughs> that long would be one way of thinking about it. You're going to get there. I like the idea that we will get there in the end and. I suppose one can feel somehow part of that process, even mm. if the situations we're living in at the moment are not always that are not always that cheerful. But on the also the other thing I like about that that, that story is that the idea that the culture could be passing through. You could be talking to uh, you know that I suppose that is a, the pleasure of kind of reading science fiction. You know that somebody else could be um, an alien anthropologist yeah. or you know and um, you know in some ways what you say might be taken down for the future as well in some. Yeah curious where you become part of history so i think all of those reasons i like that book uh, i like that book on that series and it's a way of think, imagining the future beyond beyond the present I there's like a cathedral i think somewhere in europe that's playing a piece by a famous composer over like hundreds or thousands of years um so like they'll just play a single note for days or weeks and then, like, oh, is people... this the, the Long Now project? I think it's probably yeah. associated with the Long Now Foundation, um, where they're planning to just play a single piece of music over you know many people's lifetimes. So maybe that's a good way to think of like, yeah, we got to do socialism by the end of this piece. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that, you know, that, if nothing else, that's, that's an optimistic project, you know. It's, mm-hmm. it's not, we don't have to cram it all in as quickly as possible. So, and I think that's, a, you know, that's also an important scale. We have to be able to think on a cosmic scale as well as, you know, an individual scale on the everyday. As always with the imagination, you have to try and think on all of those scales at the same time. Yeah, it's a project that sort of interpolates an intergenerational audience like you're not going to be able to hear the whole piece but you got to keep doing (laughs) this thing or it doesn't get played we read news from nowhere from 1890 a utopian socialist book by william morris the ministry for the future came out in 2020 by kim stanley robinson and the city in the city came out in 2009 by China Mieville. So let's start with the utopia. Let's start from News from Nowhere. William Morris was an artist, designer, and a socialist pioneer. And the book kind of takes this very classic utopian structure of that time where I'm a narrator coming back to tell you about this weird world that I, that I encountered. If you've read um, The Time Machine by H.G. Wells, which is not which is a dystopia, but it's the same sort of idea. I've, I've gone into the future somehow. Don't ask too many questions about how it happened. And now I'm back and I'm going to tell you what it was like. I woke up in the future and met a lot of people who love exposition. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Come to tell you. Come to tell you all. <laughs> I'm, I'm writing this book now about my conversation with this one guy, basically. <laughs> and I think China Mayville in that list, he put this on that list and probably like, well, it's a nice, uh, maybe it's a bit of a, you know, naive utopia, but slightly less naive than this other, the one that came before by that other author. Yeah, I guess William Morris, I forget what that one was called, the the, the returning or the, the beforehand or the 
before i guess william morris was very like oh no because william morris was kind of he wasn't necessarily he, he sympathized with luddites he was he was like a anarcho-primitivist in some sense and so the other book that came before it was all about how technology in the city is going to save you and um and news from nowhere is not like 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 that there's this return to agrarian life in it yeah it's very much the 14th century he goes on about the the 14th century and even people dress in clothes as though they were in the 14th century and you see houses that are like the sort of timbered plaster and timber you know classic sort of bit he's talking about a bit earlier than the tudor period but we sort of associate them with the tudor period in 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 kind of english so it looks a bit like that so it's got a slightly as he said it's a slightly naive feel to it perhaps but actually i was thinking uh i mean i reread it recently myself and i was thinking actually it's still quite readable you know it's uh it's it's, it's although there is exposition it is in i suppose in the classic manner of utopias anyway it's a bit of a tour so we don't hang about we get whisked off on a well whisked off is perhaps not the right word we get sort of jogged along on a, on a horse and cart through london i think it it, it must be about 2000 uh, uh 2100 so it's like approximately 200 years after morris is is writing and actually in some ways, it's gone back a bit towards the 14th century, which is the slightly weird uh, aspect of it in that London's much more depopulated. But the population as a whole isn't depopulated. They've just moved across the country and there's kind of almost like a pastoral idyll across um, England with you know people living in villages which have become more populated. And even in, in, in London, London's become like a, a linked set of villages and there's markets and sort of local democracy decisions are made in you know everybody gets together in the sort of kind of town hall and decides if they're going to build a bridge or if they're not going to build a bridge and everything's on a kind of simple majority and everybody joins in because everybody can do if they can't do thatching really really well they can you know they can they can labor or they can they can do woodwork or they can they can do carving mm. or weaving or brewing or you know some other useful function that's children are can basically just as far as I can recall, run around wild and camp in the woods during this during the summer. Run and shoe stops or what, what, shoe shops? They're, they're like working. They work. Oh yeah, no, that's that, that, that's <laughs> yeah. it. They they go into they go into are they little shop. elves like cobblers? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, they go into they go into a shop and there's no money. There's no. I mean, that's that's the key point. There's no there's no property. There's no ownership. There's no system of payment. There's no prisons. Those are the kind of u- utopian aspects, and everybody, as a result, looks looks incredibly healthy. There's a slightly old-fashioned gender politics to it, in which all the women are kind of comely and all happy. But I think that's partly drawing a contrast with his his contemporary 1890 London that is uh, that he's writing about, where uh, the incredible kind of poverty in the east end of london and you know packed in streets and beggars and uh, and the entire every kind of urban deprivation uh, so it's a kind of contrast he's drawing a kind of contrast with that so and i think it's quite you know it's quite pleasant <laughs> in many ways obviously it's not the future we're anticipating now but it's a kind of act of imagining the future which i think makes it interesting i suppose it's also interesting in that there's a long chapter called how the, i think it's called how the change happened or something which is that's my favorite actual, chapter yeah i think because it feels because it's still what people talk about today how is the change going to happen this whole idea of general strikes and mutual aid to all who need it. I mean, that's the hardest part about writing about a utopia. Getting there. <laughs> I mean, Morris didn't really become a 
socialist until later in his life. He really began from the aesthetic aspect, and he was a big medievalist, um, and he would write like epic poems. He translated the, the Icelandic Eddas into English. But when he did become a socialist, he was associated with the more like revolutionary Marxist groups, unlike someone like H.G. Wells, who was more of a Fabian. So that middle chapter, it feels like a fairly like Marxist analysis of how things would happen. And then everything around it is much more still the medievalist arts and crafts, William Morris. You know, if there's Marx in that, it's like early humanist fish in the evening, fish in the morning, right? Criticism in the evening yeah. type of Marx. That's quite attractive, though, that, 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 that model, as long as you, I mean, I think we'd want a slightly more imaginative version of it than the, the Morris is, is offering. But you can still see how by thinking, having that aesthetic sense of a kind of uh, a full life in a medieval context you know supplies most of the most of the book but as, as you know as we were saying it's he does actually think then how do i get there and I, in some ways it's almost like the only way you can think of getting there is by having you know a fairly classic you know revolution in which the the sort of working classes rise up against what's been kind of like it's quite an interesting description because it start. It, 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 he imagines there's a kind of state socialism has kind of arisen and it get it all kicks off around about 1950 i think it's 1952 the kind of fighting and the change begins imagining effectively half of the 20th century being the century of of the welfare state and those kind of reforms which is actually a very accurate um well you you guys piece, in the uk have a very have a very different history with regards to socialism than we do here in the united states well yeah it's very accurate of <laughs> but even even it, 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 you know, there's some sense of that, I think, in in in, in New, New Deal America of the 30s, but certainly of, of you know the time he's talking about, there is a there is a, a socialist. Well, yeah, state is kind of state socialism. There's there's kind of obviously universal health health care and a full system of social security payments and support in in 1950s Britain of that kind of post-war welfare state. But for, but for for Morris, that's not enough. That's kind of like a form of a glorified form of the poor law. He more or less says, and that's why it kind of kind of raises raises it, everything raises to a head, and you you go from having mass demonstrations in Trafalgar Square to there being, as you said, a general strike. There's a bit of toing and froing, and the entire system sort of breaks down, and they do something they do something else. I mean, we had a general strike in Britain as well in 1926, but it didn't actually work out in the way that Morris <laughs> Morris predicted. In fact, it lasted nine days. And then the kind of uh, the union leaders kind of abandoned their workers who were still out and and, and called it off, and the whole thing ended in in uh, you know disaster and set back the cause of the labour movement by about uh, you know at least ten years or more. And in some ways, it's it's, it's kind of quite surprising that 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 1945 welfare state even happened so closely to the to, to the general strike in in, in 1926. <laughs> Reading this book from the other side of the 20th century, a lot of the, well, just get rid of private property and everything will work out stuff feels naive. But a lot of the other things feel like he could be an abolitionist right now, like the way he talks about what the police are and what their interests are right, right. and what they do. I also really enjoyed, because this isn't a new concept when he's talking about the so-called liberal paper, and he says, which after a preamble in which is declared its undercoating sympathy with the cause of labor proceeded to point out that in times of revolutionary disturbance, it believed the government to be just but firm, and that by far the most merciful way of dealing with the poor madman 
who were attacking the very foundations of society, which had made them mad and poor, was to shoot them at once. <laughs> mm-hmm. This whole idea of like, yeah, 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 we totally sympathize with you, but also you do not do that <laughs> or else you deserve to die, which is, I think, something that we're contending with now, the liberal mentality. Oh, yeah, mentality. No, very, very much. In that, that, that the... Yeah, the liberal newspaper and the, uh, but even sometimes the the newspapers are are the same. I mean, he, there's a particular point where he says, "Oh, the Daily Telegraph in 1952 was a right wing newspaper." Well, it's still a right wing newspaper <laughs> now. You know, it's always been a right wing <laughs> newspaper. <laughs> and that, in that sense, the things that haven't changed are quite interesting in, in terms of Britain as well. But I suppose what I like about that novel is when is when he um, there's a kind of way though that it's not just a kind of vision of the future he is actually imagining it from the perspective of the future so every time the narrator who's kind of like William Morris himself and he calls himself William Guest in, mm-hmm. in, in the story every time he asks a question that slightly he always runs the risk of annoying the people he's talking to so he starts asking about prisons or he starts asking about the education system or he starts asking about divorce courts people get upset because the con- the very concept is so upsetting to them because mm-hmm. they move beyond that in terms of their kind of uh, a moral um, framework that it, it it's kind of got an estranging effect on us and you know we start to think start to realize yeah you know maybe <laughs> maybe it's possible to have you know have a system that doesn't view these things from the same way we're doing so I think that's the that's the kind of a key it's not just a kind of blueprint for the future it's also I mean as, as we said it's a blueprint we possibly you know don't necessarily want to want to enact although again you know it's the kind of place it'd be quite nice to spend a fortnight's holiday in yeah. you know traveling <laughs> around <laughs> and uh, finding out what, what what's going on but i think it's also that idea that it you know that it's different that therefore then there's different morals and people are thinking differently and a kind of different sense of justice and even things they're angry about and that that is what helps us to imagine that that, that things could be different that book mm-hmm. uh herland has kind of the same template definitely the, the biggest laughs in that book i mean it, you know it's, not, <laughs> it's supposed to be exactly like news from nowhere right a report from this utopia but they're just where where the men come in and and see this beautiful place and try to say where what where are all the cows how come uh, all these women are standing up for themselves it's that's the funny funny clash the uh, the way the children sort of just wander around the countryside doing whatever they want also reminded me of the female man it's kind of a cliche to point out the etymology of utopia that it literally means no place yeah. but kind of what's nice about one of the things that's nice about news from nowhere which also has that etymology mm-hmm. in the title is that it is so based in place like he's writing about william morris is writing about parts of england that he lived in and knew yeah um, and it's very based in that specific sense of place and even though he was writing from a socialist perspective feels like a, it was also an influence on you know works with um not those politics at all like it feels like that he's talking about the shire a lot like it feels yeah. like a precursor to lord of the rings <laughs> or like i mean J.R. tolkien was a pretty like reactionary guy but Lord of the Rings was also taken up by like mid 60s, mid 20th century 60s, like back to the land hippie types and sort of feels like a lineage going back to dudes from nowhere. There's such a focus on like how virile and like embodied everyone is (laughs) at some point, like halfway or like two thirds into the book. I started imagining everyone's clothing and buildings being like the people in um, Midsummer. It's like they just turned into the Midsummer cult (laughs) in my mind. It's got that same in 
her land, the women are are virile and and like thick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's a very <laughs> it's a very nineteenth century um, like yeah. idea, like you know, phys- the physical culture movement that was right. um, big in Germany at the time and eventually fed into fascism. But that doesn't make <laughs> this like a proto-fascist work. There were like ideas that were big in in circulation and changed into various things. But, I mean, if you think about how awful cities were in Europe for, you know, up until that time, it's easy to imagine how this back to the land, out of the cities thing was very <laughs> attractive. Yeah. <laughs> I was imagining him, the author or the narrator, waking up now because it's not that far away. The time that he's envisioning and mm. how and how sad he would be. <laughs> he would be just so sad that that it's the same conversation being had in the quote unquote socialist halls. <laughs> it's kind of funny how he he goes on. First of all, William Morris hates iron bridges more than anything in the, on the world. <laughs> right. In the world, it keeps bringing them up. But he's also there's long passages about how the like the architecture. And the, you know, the consumer goods of the bourgeois class of the time were terrible, just ugly, and led to ugly lives. Yet the kind of design that he, the designs and products he made himself during his own life were very popular among the bourgeoisie and like the middle class, English middle classes. So his his own life kind of counteracted that part of his argument. Hey, yeah, Bill has think- got to pay the bill somehow. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose the, the Morris idea about sort of a useful work versus useless toil and the useful work has always got a creative element into it. Even if you're actually just digging a, a, a road, it's kind of productive and creative because something's going to happen. But anything else has a level of kind of artistic creation kind of put into it. I mean, that also influences, socialist, not a science fiction novel, but a socialist novel, Robert Tressel's The Ragged Trouser Philanthropist, where the, mm-hmm. this group of kind of house painters and decorators in, in, in Hastings and there the, the main character who, who kind of gets slightly to gets to illustrate the difference between the the rest of the ha- uh, the rest of the workers are being forced to do everything as quickly as possible slap on only one coat of paint as quickly as possible and it, it's a kind of metaphor for the shoddiness of capitalism that comes straight out of, of morris but the, the the protagonist is actually is good at some sort of design skills so he's designing a really nice parlor for exactly for the bourgeois you know inhabitants who don't really appreciate it anyway but they get something that could be one of those you know morris style designs kind of in so that those ideas of morris were very central to you know the labor movement in britain at least up until the the first world war and kind of kind of kind of beyond and i think it's then that that we sort of move beyond slightly that pastoral idea of being healthy outside the cities you know what's what's a very heteronormative kind of feel to 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 news from from nowhere it's got slightly dodgy reproductive politics because it's uh, really you know, the, hilarious love story at the end you're like yeah what? <laughs> where did this come from and morris why do- <laughs> morris does an interesting little he does like a two-step maneuver where he like first he says well of course like housework and all that stuff is labor just like all other all other labor and women just happen to like it. <laughs> they just love it more than men. <laughs> so they're still doing it in our yeah. post-property utopia. But I suppose we we could reimagine that differently because he does. I mean, I, you know that that does stick, obviously it sort of hits you in the face when you when you when you read it. But he does make a point of saying that the women are not the property of the men. So you could update it. You probably wouldn't update it because we probably want something more modern as our model for for, for utopia. But it does at least have that kind of possibility that you could uh, you could imagine it differently. 
differently. In, in some ways, we, as you say, it's, it, it re- just reads funnily to us now rather yeah. than, uh, yeah. I do kind of like the way he describes housework. Like he says, yeah, it's organizing a complex thing and ordering people around. And, you know, everyone likes to be ordered around by a comi- comely lass. <laughs> Com- the little pleasures of life. There, um, I wanted to mention this one quote that I think sums up his philosophy of why this happened. He writes, The end, it was seen clearly, must be either absolute slavery for all but the privileged or a system of life founded in equality and communism. You, you got two choices, <laughs> basically. <laughs> yeah, well, um, that's difficult to argue with, isn't it? That's <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Reading this book and then reading The Ministry for the Future from 2020 by Kim Stanley Robinson was a really interesting juxtaposition because one is this very, like you said, naive utopia, this like lush imagined place. And the other one, like I think a lot of what Kim Stanley Robinson does, is incredibly detailed and incredibly like, let's really dig into how this theoretically could happen, this uh, this better future that we're envisioning. He himself is a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, and he, it, the book has the feel of, oh yeah, that seems possible. <laughs> it starts right now. The book starts right now, and here's a climate catastrophe, a heat wave in India that kills 20 million people. The whole book is all these different first first-person accounts of climate disaster after climate disaster, you know, flash floods, the the impending unrecoverable melting of the polar ice caps. And so Ken Stanley Ron- Robinson makes sure to ground it all in, you know, all the latest research. Like he's clearly researched every single topic here. There's very little, you know, his extrapolations are not wild. They're they're like they're even like pretty medium in the terms of like the scale of climate change catastrophes. They're in the middle. Like it could be a lot worse than what's in this book. Because I guess the people have to survive for 500 pages. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you can't write a utopia without any hope. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but the first half of the book is really just more and more awful things happening. And a few people are trying to talk some sense into the world, but everybody with actual power in the world refuses to listen. And so that is the struggle for the whole book. And at some point, it has to turn. And then the question is, well, is that point going to be too late? Or Mm. is it going to be actually possible to still have a civilization? Yeah, it has a kind of ticking clock device for it isn't it with the, with the level of carbon you know which keeps going up in the climate it kind of keeps going mm-hmm. up and then you know it's kind of almost like if you if you can reduce it to to a scientific process it's how many things do we have to do before it starts coming down again which is kind of what what happens but he it's not just scientific things so while we get these descriptions of how you know how you stop a glacier flowing into the sea possibly by pumping out all the water that's underneath it that's that's allowing it to glide over the the rocks you also get a, a whole list of all the kind of social changes which is not just one big william morris style change where where um you have a rev you, you have a revolution it's all sorts of different kind of changes going on everywhere from i suppose refugees escaping or getting involved in in sometimes it's not even entirely clear what what people are doing but they're doing something that's kind of <laughs> solid <laughs> increasing solidarity and resistance and it's about changing the ways that, that carbon's priced into stuff on, on a very high level and then there's also people you know blowing up airliners and things like that so mm-hmm. uh, effectively you know forms of terrorism happening as well Plus this central 
body, the Ministry for the Future, which is actually like a UN grouping based in Switzerland, who've got this kind of brief for somehow, you know, which seems to be about eight people working in a building, mainly <laughs> yeah. from, 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 from their meetings, but are kind of encouraging all these kind of projects that are happening around the world that might make that might make that possible. And it's actually a much more, it doesn't seem to have the big dramatic element to it, but actually as, as a, I thought it worked very well as over, because we, you know, we're kind of moving through an exciting range of things actually happening and you get tied up in, in sometimes very little stories and sometimes very big stories that plus there's all sorts of other weird bits like a description firsthand of how a carbon mo- molecule gets captured you know historically oh, yeah there's the... all these little vignettes <laughs> from the perspective yeah. of the carbon molecule or from the what perspective am i uh, i am a carbon molecule <laughs> <laughs> the perspective of a, a photon that has escaped the sun and is now hitting the earth yeah or yeah, even yeah. from the uh the perspective of rsa encryption some of those flourishes reminded me of this book nick that you also mentioned in your article red plenty which is not a science fiction book but it feels like it that is a book about it's kind of the the telling of trying to make a planned economy in uh soviet russia over the 20th century and it has some very technical parts of the book like one of the characters is a mathematician who works on constrained optimization. And so if you can actually, so, you know, I'm a science guy, I'm a nerd, but I really enjoyed that part. <laughs> I mean, I enjoyed the whole book. It's, it is really good, but it also has a couple flourishes like that. Like some guy gets lung cancer from smoking. And so one chapter is just like the point of told pretty much from the point of view of the cell, the cancer cells in his lungs. And that book also gets name dropped in ministry for the future. At some point he says the red mm, yeah. version. Yeah. yeah. Ministry of the future definitely feels like culmination of a lot of ideas that uh, Kim Stanley Robinson has been working with in his last few books. One thing I do like about his books is he'll often like briefly mention something that's a major factor in a previous book. We're like, yeah, that didn't work out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like colonizing Mars. And a lot of his more recent books are largely about climate change and sort of seem to be like, what if it's about all about this? Like, what if it's all about tenant unions? What if it's all about China? What if it's all about India and the UN? Right. And yet he's trying to cover so much ground that saw someone say that this book kind of reads like a think tank white paper and it does sort of you know almost not feel like a novel at times i mean that kind of points to how socialist theory itself is a sort of speculative fiction Mm. it's about what could the future be like kim stanley robinson's fascination with the swiss um because so (laughs) much of his books about switzerland (laughs) they the swiss show up in the mars trilogy as like particularly suited to mars and they have all these weird little projects but uh he goes even harder in the swiss in this one he really it's a long chapter where he says wow these native swiss are so good at hiking up glaciers yeah (laughs) yeah they make Switzerland seem very exciting, though, because even some of the more, more you know, the, the bits that are kind of action scene, I think the most extended action scene is in Switzerland, where, the, you know, the, 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 the main protagonist, Mary, who's the head of the Ministry for the Future, she's, she's under a threat of being assassinated. So the, the sort of Swiss security types take her up. Basically, you end up having to climb, don't they, over some sort of glacier part of the yeah, of the mountain. Yeah, and there's, there's an, so you do still get an extended kind of exciting action sequence, but in, 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 
incredible landscape, which I suppose is only possible in in Switzerland. But I, I, coming back to that, that that idea of it being like a kind of um, a think tank paper, I mean, we even get told the readers get asked to you know figure things out for themselves at various. It's it, told to go off and research. I think it's cognitive bias or something. We get you know we get told you know. You, you can research this on the net, you know, off you go yeah. and kind of look it up and come back. And we, you know, we get told, you know, that, you know, well, to sort solve the kind of economic situation, you know, you, there's various possibilities, you know, now go and think about it. What are you going to do? <laughs> I, I love, I love that address actually in it. In some ways, it'd be great if all, all, all think tank kind of offerings were, were, you know, were like that. But I think in some ways, that's, that's possibly what he's trying to say he's trying to say you know we we are the think tank you know the science fiction writers of the world or the socialist science fiction writers of the world you know so don't you know don't read don't worry yourself about those kind of obscure sort of uh, think tanks that, that are funded by um, you know dark capitalist money but <laughs> <laughs> this is a crowdsourced think tank paper that you've just bought and you can interact so there's something actually utopian and socialist about us reading the novel itself and discussing it you noted earlier how weird it is that this is this was on obama's like favorite yeah, books of the that was list. the weirdest thing for me it did made... he read it did a staffer tell him it should be his favorite book <laughs> that's what i think what happened they i mean i was at first i was like oh maybe they're going to make it seem like the terrorism was bad but they don't they really talk about how you know, kim stanley robinson really makes it feel like that all of this stuff was necessary for the change that happened see it sort of made sense to me that he would like this because the heroes of the book really are mostly like technocrats doing technocratic fixes thing is like all of that only becomes possible because of like huge crisis and like a massive terrorism campaign yeah exactly um, yeah downs most flights kills a lot of the richest people on the planet but that almost becomes a just a background of this technocratic narrative i guess um, so i, I don't think he read it maybe obama was really thinking of that swiss family robinson book <laughs> I thought this was a very interesting pairing with News from Nowhere because it's sort of like, how do you imagine the future before the 20th century happened and like, what's left for you to imagine after it's happened? But also, they're sort of opposites and that Morris is like, get rid of this one thing, private property. It will take a crisis, but then everything sort of works itself out. Whereas with Kim Stanley Robinson, it's like, it's this little thing, it's this little thing, it's this little thing, mm-hmm. it's this little thing. Throw it together, yeah, you have to use boring laws and bureaucracies, but like all the little things together in the right crisis maybe can work out. Also, Ministry for the Future is on this huge, massive global scale. And then in News from Nowhere, it, it seems like it's just the UK. It's just yeah. like England where that's happening. Like they even talk about other places and they're like, oh, it must be terrible in other places. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I think that's that's obviously partly a product of writing in sort of Victorian London, you know, in 1890 when it's the center of the empire. And, you know, in some ways that's the only thing that's in, important. What's going on elsewhere is kind of not a not a concern. But um, and I don't think that it would be any easier. Well, it wouldn't. I, I was trying to have wondering if you could construct an argument where it'd be better if you still had the british empire today and if you could just overturn it then you could have world socialism but i don't i don't uh, you know i don't i don't think that's a that's an argument i want to pursue particularly <laughs> anyway put it that way so i prefer the i suppose in some ways that is what robinson's doing by having it in switzerland because if you're going to talk about a global agency this, you know switzerland i mean apart from the fact the un is based in switzerland anyway I and mean, it's about the least if you're going to have a western 
power. It's about the least hegemonic Western power in some ways. It's not, you know, it's neutral. Then the Swiss are not invading anyone particularly. You know, they're making watches. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, oh, we don't know where that money came from. <laughs> yeah, not, I mean, they're neutral. This gold? But... <laughs> Dump your gold here. No problem. But yeah, well, take I... anyone stolen gold. <laughs> but we won't necessarily give it back. You know, that's that's the that's the. But also, there's a, there's a, I think there's also that sort of slightly matter of fact kind of Swiss. I mean, it's perhaps, I wonder, I'm not entirely expert enough on Switzerland to know if it's particularly kind of Swiss German kind of culture, but he does center on, on, on a kind of Swiss German culture. So there's a slight kind of matter of factness you get amongst the Swiss and the Germans and every, about, you know, a number of, but well, I suppose in some ways they're at ease with their bodies in a, in, in a more advanced way than, than the characters in, 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 in William Morris. So there is some kind of continuity of that and I think even the hiking in 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 the glasses even though he has to throw in the fact they're being being chased there is some well she goes swimming every day in the in that yeah lake, that's right, right? Yeah. yeah and he starts reading novels Frank there's another character Frank who's kind of the American character I guess there just has to be an American kind of viewpoint character as, as well but i mean he's he starts sitting on a rock in in in, in the countries uh, uh, well up in the mountains looking at deer there's several sort of epiphanic moments where he looks at a deer and then he's reading english novels so there mm. is a kind of there is this there is some kind of continuation in 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 that respect that we're still imagining utopia with some sort of kind of picturesque you know romantic idea of the picturesque kind of in there as as, as well of kind of contemplation of the glories of nature <laughs> people have criticized utopianism for being like against human nature or whatever but i think the, the bigger problem is like there's no such place as nowhere anything that could happen will happen to ha- will have to happen in relationship to other places and i think these novels escape from the the nowhere problem in different ways news from nowhere by being so rooted in place and Minister of the Future by trying to be about the entire world system, which does kind of end up meaning you don't get that much of a... You don't get, like, the texture of future life, really, from it. You get the texture of what Zurich is like, <laughs> which, and maybe that's the future. You do, you do get one thing he also brings back from one of his more recent novels is um, doing, like wild animal tours from airships i did one thing i came away from this book with is a burning desire to take a transatlantic zeppelin journey (laughs) (laughs) or or sailing as well i mean there's a bit where mary travels to to certainly to the states i can't remember i think she ends up coming across to the west coast but she she does the sea voyage by a clipper and it you know it's it's a sort of you know it's as quick as it would be if you did it on a on a cruise uh line and more as as they were at the, at the end of the kind of 19th century when, when they were at their most developed stage so that idea is quite there's, there's certain romanticism in that passage as well the kind of travel and as you say the looking down looking at wild animals from 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 zeppelins or looking at whales from 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 the clipper so i suppose that's the kind of utopian aspect of it in some ways what i quite like is that the book is not it's not set in the future i mean i suppose by the end of it, it is it's got 30 or 40 years hence but it, it is kind of connecting with the with the with the here and now you know it's it, it, as, 
as we said at the beginning, it starts off with things being really bad and it's just a kind of, it's almost like the one route. If we follow this one route, you can possibly reduce the carbon levels in the, in, 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 in and then you could, um, then, you know, you could go on sailing ships or your, you know, airships and look at herds of the very okay. strange scene in, in, in America. Yeah. In, in, in where they're, they're walking herds of, herds of animals through kind of tracks of the Midwest, basically. So, to um and hoping not to get shot so it, it's it, <laughs> there's a funny moment where I, I guess he's trying to make it so that the main character mary murphy isn't doesn't know everything in the world she's not a genius but there's some stuff where i'm like really she doesn't know what a what a nature corridor is like she doesn't know how they work but you know well there's a lot of i mean people have commented on the dialogue there's a certain amount of dialogue which is ex you know, exposition dialogue. I suppose, yeah. like uh, I suppose, we've identified that also now as a kind of common. A yeah, common several chapters feature. are just minutes from the meeting. Or these conversations, which uh, I read it actually in an, uh, he, an interview with Robinson in Locus. He was saying that some of the dialogue is based on the dialogue in uh, the wartime BBC between um, hmm. George Orwell and William Empson. You know, <laughs> so there's a kind of strange literary uh, illusion and just that they're kind of rude to each other or as you said i think you said it's empson who's particularly rude to orwell and i think you get that they, they have this there's this the particular conversation about does technology drive history and it's it's a kind of very it's not even a minute of a, it's, it's almost like a stand-up act between the two characters but it's it's it i suppose it's, he, he's he's adopting a variety of approaches to try and get us to think about these questions anew in in a, in a more open and engaged way rather than you know as a kind of completely dry i mean i like the the, the, the sort of info dumps and the expositions i think mm-hmm. it's it, it's like a kind of modernist the way he does it is like a modernist kind of structure as he did i think a bit with 2312 a few years ago as well it's a similar kind of kind kind of kind of pattern and it you know it keeps you keeps you the reader on interested and on our feet as we kind of switch switch between these different modes and try and you know get an angle on what's actually happening <laughs> Robinson's characters have always been representatives of certain ways of thinking or scientific disciplines first and then people second. Sometimes he, I think, I think he makes them like real people, feel like real people and also be like, I represent geology or what have you. Yeah. Yeah. I represent (laughs) PTSD suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's less successful. (laughs) That dialogue between that sort of abstract conceptual dialogue between the two unidentified inter- interlocutors is probably the funniest part of the, the book. There's uh, one where they're saying, people? Do you mean scientists or politicians? Politicians, of course. <laughs> scientists are people. I thought it was the reverse. Neither scientists nor politicians are people. Um, I was going to say, when we were talking about News from Nowhere, that because we had just read another utopia before that. I'm trying to remember what it Ecotopia. was. Ecotopia? Ecotopia. And yeah. it's actually kind of refreshing to read like a really just straight utopia because it's it makes you feel good. So, you know, like <laughs> yeah. it, it makes you feel better than maybe like if you're reading this really bleak future, which there's so much of. That's setting up our next conversation about the city and the city. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. Well, The City in the City um, is a 2009 novel, and China Mievel says that he writes weird fiction. That's the genre that he exists in. And this is kind of like a combo of sci-fi and like a p- police procedural because his what I was reading was that his um, I think his mother was was sick and that her favorite genre was this police procedural. So he did this little mashup. I didn't get to read it, but I did watch the BBC miniseries, which is really, really good. 
well done. And I don't know what the difference is. So. I'm looking forward to watching that because I really enjoyed the book. Couldn't put yeah. it down, as they say. In, yeah, tell us, Moses, what was it about? <laughs> uh, and yeah, it's a noir detective uh, book set in uh, an Eastern European city that through some unexplained or even true uninvestigated space-time anomaly, as they would say in Star Trek, but they don't say in this book, is two cities occupying the same physical space. So one of the cities is called Ulkoma, and the other is called Bezel. If you're walking around Bezel, you can kind of see Ulkoma shadily. Crot and cross-hatching is what it's called, is that you can kind of see into the city, which has the same topography, same structure, but at some point, space is just doubled. And mm-hmm. there are areas in the city uh, that are totally one city or totally the other city or cross-hatched in between. And the detective part of this is that there's uh, an archaeological student who turns up murdered. Uh, they find her body. It becomes cl- clear that she was murdered in one of the cities and then the body was dumped in this city and so it must have been an illegal smuggling kind of thing but she was also an archaeological student who was studying artifacts buried underneath this city that are completely mysterious because they seem to mix up different times the 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 artifacts you know they're buried in the same strata but they seem to be from different time periods or different cities or the same city so the entire history of these two cities is all mixed up and impossible to uh, untangle but the the real tension in the book is how these two cities see themselves as separate things because Never they have the to. twain shall meet. <laughs> exactly. You, yeah. They have to have their sense of identity to be so strong because otherwise they would, I don't, I don't know, it, psychologically you would just go insane if you, they blurred the cities together. There is a building in the middle of the city, in the middle of both cities, where you can legally pass from one city to the other. But it is completely taboo and illegal or beyond illegal. Like it's, it's against the fabric of your reality if you try to pass from one city to the other in one of these crosshatch zones where the cities overlap because it would just be utter chaos if you could pass at any point between the two cities it would be it would it would destroy the integrity of that city's identity so there's like a third force so it's called breaching and it's so taboo so there's a third police force or enforcement that makes sure that nobody breaches accidentally because you're not even supposed to notice the other city even if you're walking past an area and you look through it if you see them you have to unsee them so that's a really great psychological part of the book of you have to live in this city. You have to you know that there's another city there. And when you're driving around, it's possible to hit cars from this other city. You have to make sure that you are not noticing them, but you're noticing them enough so that you don't accidentally hit them. One of the cities is more prosperous than the other, so there's a lot of kind of classism and this idea of, yeah, I don't know, a kind of double think, if you, if you say it right, where you have to see one thing but behave another way. Well, I think it, the, there's there's several interesting kind of things going on. I mean, obviously, as you, as you said, the central premise is so, you know, mind-bending anyway that it, it that it, it takes a lot of kind of adjusting to. In fact, I know some people who just who just didn't like the book because they didn't accept the premise that you could have this setup where, you, you know, you could kind of maneuver by unseeing half of you know what's going on around you and then sort of just kind of relating to the other one but i mean in some ways it obviously relates to real life you know just to the extent that you you know you might unsee the homeless people in the street you know when you're on your Mm -hmm. way home from work you know there's there's that level to it but there's also the the level of these divided i mean although it's not physically divided in the way that berlin was there's a kind of sense more somewhere like istanbul where it's you know got a kind of both a christian and a muslim kind of culture embedded in it and there's that kind of historical difference you know and there's 
there's at least two or three different names of that city in historical existence but it's all kind of merged merged together and i suppose there is between the two countries there is this difference the one is more modern and the other one is more traditional so that that there's and and the more modern one is perhaps more well it reads more is i think it's experienced more like a kind of secular version of turkey rather than perhaps something that's kind of communist but it could you could imagine it as being mm-hmm. kind of so there's all of those all of those splits come to mind when you when you you're you're, you're reading it so you're trying to negotiate all of those so i suppose i see it as a, a novel about kind of perception and consciousness in some ways and it's the character has to has to learn how to see well that's a complicated bit it's complicated to describe because you 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 expressed it uh, uh, very well in that you've got to be able to drive without seeing the other cars in the other city but without actually kind of crashing crashing into them and it's almost like the, the, the detective has to get to a kind of third position somewhere beyond that where he can kind of see everything but he still has to be able to see it as though he was was a citizen of either of the two cities so he's kind of simultaneously holding you know free perspectives or something like that so that would be um i suppose i see that as something like a i don't think it's meant as a literal metaphor of how you develop something like full consciousness but it's that kind of idea the kind of imagined kind of how you have to think in three dimensions to really gain a kind of i don't know emancipated kind of kind of view i mean it depends how we read the end of the novel to some extent mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. where, how, how 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 successfully we 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 see that happening i, I see it yes it's about that kind of perception consciousness that you it's a kind of consciousness growing you have to learn as you read it so i suppose that's what's similar i think with 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 some of the other utopian novels we've discussed there's a kind of learning process for the reader as well because we're trying to layer layer this up uh this understanding of in in uh, say news from nowhere it's too you're trying to understand both the 19th century position and the, the 21st century position of that thing looking back and how they interplay and this we're trying to understand different perspectives that are all in the same present so perhaps it's more useful for us as as um you know, if we're living in, I don't know, you know, in a Western society, which combines, like as both the UK and the US do, which can combine, you know, in some ways, outdated and traditional viewpoints on all sorts of things. And also moral areas, for example, in certain sections of society. At the same time, you know, the most advanced modernity that you can kind of encounter. And sometimes sometimes that's just, you know, it's just weird. I don't think we think about the weirdness of the societies that we actually live in enough that there's mm-hmm. all this stuff kind of going on. I mean, in some ways in London, it's like you could be, you could see the, the medieval landscape, you could see the, the 19th century landscape, you could see the 21st city at the same, uh, 21st century city at the same time and try and think about all the kind of value systems that have been in that area. So I suppose in some ways the, these, mm-hmm. these, these kind of things are in any city with enough history to, to right. you know, to, to have that. Yeah. <laughs> As fantastical as the premise is, I felt, even though it's a fantastical premise, I felt like it really captures the feeling of living in a city divided by class, so pretty much Mm -hmm. any city, even beyond, like, look seeing but ignoring homeless people like you know if there's a bad neighborhood it's like it's five minutes away but oh yeah we don't go there it's basically it's basically a separate city and yeah the way we manage to interact with each other in such a stratified society without being in open warfare with each other feels like 
feels a lot like these two cities that are somehow overlapped with each other um, and tried to ignore each other. I think it does a good job of being like a metaphor for how ideology functions that puts a spotlight on how ideology is something that is ingrained in how we live. It's not just this layer of ideas that's on the top in our heads. I also enjoyed the ways that the author, John Mayville, you know, he anticipates all these analyses. Like he puts out the, here's the book of two, or the premise that there are two cities and you have to unsee one and all this stuff. And it could be about class or it could be, anyway, so one example is, yeah, he sees a homeless person lying in the street and people in both cities are ignoring the homeless person. Like, because it could be a homeless person in either city, but still, even if it were in their own city, they would also ignore him. And then later in the book, we hear the detective talk about a conference he went to a global conference on divided cities where they talk about these cities Olkoma and Bessel but then also West and East Berlin and, and all these others and the Olkomans and the Bessel the Bez are both scoffing. Like, how dare you compare us to a walled city? A wall is nothing. <laughs> you have no idea what kind of psychological things we training we have to go grow up with in order to unsee just across the street every single day. I build more walls than that in my mind every day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. One last time, if you just listen to this entire show and thought to yourself, hang on a second, weren't they supposed to play music? Well now, you're listening to the podcast edit of this show. If you want to listen to the music, go to lastyearfeedpod.com. You can find a playlist of all the music that we play and links to the Mixcloud and all that good stuff. And um, enjoy! In some ways, we're, we're talking as, as the cognoscenti about <laughs> about these books. And which ones do you give to to? I always to, recommend to The Dispossessed to people mm, because yeah. Ursula Guin is so literary that it's that it's an enjoyable read. It's oh. almost like the problem of how do you get people to read sci-fi who don't like sci-fi? You know, you're saying so. I mean, one, yeah. I mean, for that, you, you possibly could give somebody the city in the city because you know I've done that with people and they've read it because it's a police mm-hmm. procedural. I mean, it's a bit more complicated to suggest why that might be socialist though. So that's with all these books, you're assuming we, we come back to that question at the beginning. You know, of, of reading being frivolous. A reading mm-hmm. isn't frivolous, and I think that has to. Be, <laughs> we have to put forward that argument first that reading is not frivolous. Thank you for coming on our show. And uh, next week, we're talking about our theme is speculative, speculative fiction. So it's like um, movies and things that didn't get made. So what are we reading? I think William Gibson wrote a spec script for Alien 3. Hodorowski's oh, Dune. And there was maybe? some David Lynch, yes. Rocket Man. Yeah, David Lynch, Ronnie Rocket. Um, <laughs> he's a spaceman from the future <laughs> so it's a script for a film that was never made and then also Lost Soul The Doom Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau as well that did get made but oh, it I oh, mean yes you're right <laughs> I mean what got made probably isn't what he wanted to make yeah. there was much that didn't get made in yes. what got made so yeah that's what we're talking about next week you can check out our website I will link to Nick's uh, Twitter there uh, lastrefugepod.com send us an uh, email the last refuge of the incompetent at gmail.com uh, leave us a voicemail 805-253-3091 that's 805-253-3091 eventually there'll be a separate RSS feed for the little radio play that you heard before this episode aired 
So check out the Incompanots on a podcasting platform near you. And um, I hope tonight when you fall asleep, tomorrow you wake up in a future uh, socialist utopia. <laughs> so. I hope it only takes 12 hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sweet dreams, Incompeteers. Science fiction.